Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with award-winning campaigner Harriet Kingaby. It was recorded at the end of October 2022. Harriet is an activist working at the intersection of advertising, climate change and misinformation. She's worked with some of the world's biggest and smallest brands, startups and social enterprises to land international climate change campaigns, build brands with purpose and to create behaviour change programmes with impact. She co-founded the Conscious Advertising Network, something that we'll hear plenty about in this episode, and works as Insight Lead at Media Bounty, a creative and media agency that believes environmental and social innovation drives business performance. After a little bit of obligatory Brit-on-Brit weather chat, our conversation gets stuck into all things greenwashing. So, let's get on with it. This is Communicating Climate Change with Harriet Kingaby. Good morning. Hey, how are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Yes, how are you? I am very well, although it's very dark and gloomy here. It's very dark and gloomy here, as you can probably okay. see. For yeah. Some <laughs> <laughs> yeah, reality bites. Maybe you could give an introduction to the Conscious Advertising Network and sort of explain what it is, what it hopes to achieve, and what its ambitions are for the future. Yeah, absolutely. The Conscious Advertising Network is a voluntary coalition of over 150 organisations. We exist to break the economic link between harmful content and advertising, because sadly, advertising is bankrolling a lot of the um, the hate extremism and disinformation that we find online and broadcast media. Um, We've been going for about four and a half years. If you look at our membership base, it's really quite diverse. So we've got everyone in there from Massive advertisers, um, you know, kind of big brands, right through to their big advertising agencies. But we also have a really big cohort of um, civil society members. And the reason that we do that is we're actually looking at areas where advertising and human rights intersect. And so what you don't want is advertisers talking to advertisers, talking to advertisers about um, you know, issues that affect uh, marginalised communities. So we bring the marginalised communities to the table with advertisers to get a real sense of what the problem is and also to kind of create better solutions for the, the, the issues that we unearth. Sounds like a, a very necessary and noble pursuit, I would say. And obviously puts you in good stead to talk about greenwashing. Before we jump into that, there's a question that I always like to ask uh, guests that basically stems from the fact that this is a podcast about communicating climate change. And so kind of zooming out, I wonder from your perspective, how can communication contribute to mitigating the worst effects of climate change in the first place? That's a great question. So my entire career has been in looking at the intersection between communications and environmental or social issues. And from then, I've kind of progressed from working in PR right through to working in advertising. And I've done that because I really believe that um, you know, good communications, creative communications can play a huge role in not only setting what we find desirable, um, what we see as normal, but also taking people on the journey that we need to make to do things like fix climate change. 
And there's, I guess, several ways that I feel like communications can help. So to start off with, I work in advertising now. Advertisers are literally the architects of desire. And they can convince us, well, they have convinced us that, um, you know, sugar water is associated with the American dream, that smoking and rebellion go hand in hand and all sorts of, of other things that, you know, we can just imagine. So if we can do that, if these tools can do that, then they can also help us to understand and make things like, um, you know, kind of electric vehicles um, and other big shifts that, that, that we will need to make desirable, um, accessible, interesting, um, you know, and something that you know, people really, really want. So I think it's very, very powerful. I think these tools should be used in the right way um, and with strong ethics behind them. Um, but I also think they can be massive helps. On the flip side of things, um, we see the advertising industry in general actually really um, hindering uh, the, you know, the, the climate transition in lots of ways. So, you know, as an industry, we are responsible for greenwashing. We are responsible for uh, the BP ads that ran um, around the announcement of how the war was impacting our energy prices, saying, hey, North Sea oil is a part of our low carbon energy secure future. And we're also funding a, a huge amount of online disinformation and disinformation we find in the broadcast media. So we'll talk about how advertising funds the internet, but there is a whole disinformation economy. And sadly, the advertising industry is bankrolling it. And that is the other thing that we need to change and reform in order to actually be part of the solution. It was time to turn to the topic of the day. I wondered if Harriet could tell us what exactly greenwashing is. What are some of the shapes that it can take? And perhaps most importantly, why is it a bad thing? Oh, so greenwashing comes in so many different forms. Let me start with um, let me start with climate false solutionism as one of the easier to identify wings of greenwash. Um, so one of the big problems that we've seen over the last uh, ten years is is oil and gas companies really overstating the potential of certain solutions to fix the problem. And I'll take an example of um, uh, algae fuels. Um, so one of the oil and gas majors did a big campaign saying, hey, we've got algae fuel. You know, we've sorted it. We've sorted climate change. But algae fuel is actually, you know, kind of carbon negative. Uh, it takes carbon out of the atmosphere. It's great. The issue being that, you know, algae fuel was, um, you know, 25 years away from being anywhere near useful. And actually they were investing only a tiny, tiny amount of their, what they could have been doing. Um, in developing that fuel. So by leading with that in an advertising campaign, it is massively overstating the promise. And you see that quite a lot. You see, um, you know, you've seen, seen Shell do this with their springboard work. You've seen, uh, you, you see BP do this when they talked about their renewables 10 years ago. And what they're doing is whilst the, most of their operations are contributing to the problem, they're focusing on the tiny, tiny bits that aren't. So as well as the false solutionism, you've also got that kind of green sheen style um, kind of greenwashing. And then you've got things like best in class. So, you know, we're the least gas guzzling SUV, still way worse driving that than it, it would be driving, you know, kind of smaller car, but hey, we're the best in class and, and things like that. So there's lots of different types of greenwashing. It gets complicated, but, um, you know, it's generally where a company is overstating their green credentials in some way. Next up, 
I wanted to understand if greenwashing was always an intentional act. The examples we've heard so far feel very considered, very strategic, but is that always the case? Or is there potential for accidental greenwashing too? It is definitely not always strategic. So I work for um, uh, an organization called Media Bounty. We are an ethical advertising agency and we have these really strong criteria around what clients we say yes to and what clients we don't. And we get loads of people coming to us with really, really good intentions because they've done something really cool with their organization. They've you know, made the first step into you know, greening the product or greening the organization, and they really, really want to shout about it. And we have to talk to them to really understand if they have license to communicate in this space, because unfortunately, you know, it might be this brilliant new thing that they've done, but if it's not enough, then it would be misleading for them to lead with it in an advertising campaign saying, hey, we've gone green. So an example might be someone has created a product within a line. So say, for example, a coffee product and that coffee product is sustainable, but they want to advertise it at brand level and say, hey, we're a bunch of green brands now. And you have to say, no, 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 we can talk about the product, uh, but we can't say everything in your line has gone green um, because that's just the first step into really becoming a kind of a more ethical brand. So it's, 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 it's subtleties like that. And often as marketers, we, we either get excited about things or maybe the team's super excited. So you just have to find ways of channeling that enthusiasm and presenting it in, in a way that's not going to affect the credibility of those claims and of the brand. There's often some interesting, thoughtful work to be done there to work out what the best way of doing that is. You already sort of mentioned the fact that we're all influenced on a regular basis online in our lives and i noted that in a recent uh, guardian article that was published which was an excerpt from greta thunberg's uh, new book uh, it stated that we've all been greenwashed out of our senses and since we're talking about greenwashing i wondered does that sound right to you is it that bad where are we right now and what can we do about it i mean i have to admit that i think greta thunberg's only scratch the surface. I don't necessarily think we've been greenwashed out of our senses. I think that we have been hit with what Lord Putnam called the tsunami of disinformation about climate change. And I think actually that it's worse than that. So greenwashing, corporate greenwashing, I think is very, very important in this story because it creates confusion. Um, you know, we look at that and we think, oh, well, maybe we've got carbon capture and storage. Maybe we're fixing the problem. So that's fine, right? Or, you know, you might think that by buying your H&M conscious uh, T-shirt that you're that you're doing your thing because that's what's been presented to you as a concrete action. Um, so green, corporate greenwashing is dangerous. What I think is even more dangerous is the, um, I talked about the disinformation economy earlier on. Um, so to understand what the disinformation economy is, um, you need to know that advertising funds our media. So for example, every website, most of the content creators, uh, kind of platform channels that you visit, um, and certainly a lot of the radio and TV that you will consume, they are funded by advertising. That is its business model. The issue with this is that um, certainly in, in the case of, of online advertising, some video on demand advertising, this is all placed by complex um, kind of algorithmic processes. The word complex is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. So advertisers don't really know where their advertising is going half the time. 
And that has created a, an opportunity for fraudsters. And those fraudsters, some of the content they're creating is, you know, kind of silly cat videos and games and listicles. Fine. Some of what they're creating is, is really bad hate extremism and disinformation. And unfortunately, climate change is one of those wedge issues um, that there are a lot of people with a lot of money who are quite interested in polarizing us all about. So if you couple that with hostile press, because in the UK, certainly, if you look at the ownership of our press and you look at the coverage of climate change, we still see climate change as a hoax stuff happening in mainstream press here. We also see lots of culture wars, you know, kind of like these green elite want to take your meat away and, you know, they want to ruin all our fun, essentially. Don't listen to them. How is any sane person supposed to make a judgment about climate change unless they are an expert? And they are being bombarded with information that says climate change isn't happening um, or this is some kind of conspiracy from some green elites or, you know, this eco mob don't want you to drive your car anymore. And it's it's actually creating this really difficult space to communicate. And unfortunately, it advertises bankrolling a lot of this stuff um, because it looks like content that gets lots of engagement and it flies really well on social media platforms. The algorithms go, oh, we want to advertise there. And so there's a, a lot to do on the media side of things, as well as on the creative side of things in terms of the, you know, the advertising ecosystem. And we need to clean up our information environments because otherwise what most people are hearing is misinformation or it's got a really strong anti-agenda behind it. So we need to get better at communicating these issues and advertisers have got a lot to do in terms of cleaning up that media ecosystem. The obvious next question then is, how can we, as a community of communicators working in our various respective fields, be a part of the solution? Love this. So luckily I have a three-point plan. <laughs> so I've outlined the problem, which is, is, is enough. I mean, we're near Halloween, aren't we, recording this? So it's enough to keep you up at night. On the greenwashing side of things, I think the industry has some big questions to ask itself. First off is that when we survey who works in the marketing and advertising industries, most people don't want to work on fossil fuel clients, frankly. Um, some people do, and that's absolutely fine. But, you know, actually, I think if you own an agency, you do have to ask yourself, am I going to create a talent drain by consistently asking my talent to work on this stuff? Now, I know that a lot of organizations say to, say to us privately, they say, look, so many jobs are wrapped up in these kind of clients that we you know we really don't want to get rid of them. Well, you know, what is the risk reputationally to you continuing to have these clients? There are big, big organizations now who are saying we will not work with agencies who um, also have fossil fuel clients. This isn't tiny B Corps. This is in almost international organizations. Um, and we've heard firsthand of those conversations happening and those agencies having to make hard choices. So I would say that the social mandate for having these kind of clients is reducing. I think if you are a person who is being asked to work on these accounts, there is a, a brilliant tool that's come out called, I think it's the Saboteur's Handbook, um, but it's about how you how you sabotage the brief. Um, so if you are in a space where you feel comfortable, obviously, you know, just a, with, with a lens of like being able to check our privilege on this one. If you are in a position where you feel comfortable, check out this saboteur's handbook because it does tell you a little bit about how you make it difficult for any client that you're working on or, you know, kind of briefly don't want to work on. So on that side of things, um, you know, clean creatives are doing some brilliant work as well about, you know, actually organizing employees and putting that pressure on really interesting stuff. 
from a good information side of things, I work on a project called Act Climate Labs. And what we do is we work with a network of NGOs and we're trying to get our NGOs to actually use advertising tools to start talking to people who are not hearing good messages about climate change. We're not hearing, you know, factual messages, etc. And scarily, this is like 69% of the population, we think. Um, because traditional climate comms either talk to people like me who were totally bought in, or they're spending time trying to convince the absolute antis. It's it's very expensive and time consuming to try and convince people to do things they do not want to do. So we say with you know our marketing hats on, let's talk to the people who haven't made up their minds yet, rather than sending press releases out to a, a press that frankly aren't listening, um, why don't we embrace new media techniques and think about the platforms and the apps and the media that people consume there. So my second point plan is if you're, um, you know, if you are thinking about good information, check out Act Climate Labs because there's loads of resources on there. And then my third thing is if you feel like you might be funding the disinformation economy, if you are spending large amounts of media spend and you have a strong suspicion that you A, might have climate keywords on your block list because part of the problem is that factual climate content cannot get funding by advertising because lots of people are going oh climate change you know when our ads to appear there or that you might be accidentally appearing on sites which are pushing you know hate and extremism then i would strongly suggest that you go to the conscious advertising network because we've created again manifestos that help anyone working in this area to, to actually kind of advertise this stuff better and to make better decisions. And all of this stuff is free. This is all available open source in the wider world because there's some problems that need to get fixed and we collectively can do that. Finally, I wanted to return to a big question that I like to ask all my guests. From Harriet's perspective, what's the biggest mistake that communicators make when trying to engage audiences on climate-related topics? When we start to think about communicating climate change, I think our brain naturally goes to particular places. And I think we've done a good job of like phasing out polar bears. And I think we've done a good job of not just thinking about landscapes. But unfortunately, there's still some ways that just don't work for, for the majority of the population. So when we start to talk about sacrifice, so small personal actions, there's a bit of a believability gap there. And when we, we survey people, they, they tell us look, we know this is a big problem. Like turning my lights off at night isn't, I don't believe it's going to solve anything. And you're thinking, yeah, fair. Um, so there's a bit of a believability gap there. Secondly, we see lots of adverts with quite feminine or quite premium cues. So, you know, you'll see language that is, ex is quite exclusive, that you might have to have a certain level of knowledge to understand. You'll see things like, you know, people talking about mother nature and using quite feminine cues in that, uh, you know, in the way that they communicate things. And so we need to take climate communications out of its ivory tower and make sure that it actually appeals to everybody, all genders, all backgrounds, that kind of stuff. We also see this kind of um, pushing of this activisty, young um, kind of aesthetic as well. And that turns, that turns a lot of people off. If you think about you know, the, the makeup of the UK, we're not necessarily communicating climate change to you know, kind of older people in a lot of these situations, particularly not older people who are a little bit more kind of conservative in their outlook. So we need to be thinking about things like that because a lot of these things make people think, oh, it's, it's a problem for young people. It's a problem for, you know, kind of people with a lot of privilege. We don't see enough platforming, for example, of intersectional movements 
there's a huge movement around eco-ittars, for example, that you don't hear a lot of. And we need to be like platforming those movements and giving much more credence to that, because obviously climate change will affect us all. Um, doesn't matter about your political leaning, about your age, about anything. It will affect us all. So we need to break down and rethink the um, you know, kind of cultural codes that we that we look at when we're, we're talking about climate change and create things like a vision of climate action and maybe not call it climate action, to be fair, but create a vision of positive change with a pragmatic plan that everyone can get behind, whether you're an older bloke or you're kind of young kids who are coming through school and going, oh my gosh, this is going to happen in my lifetime. Um, so for me, we need to tear it up, start again, embrace kind of radical pragmatism and look at removing the class codes and the gender codes from this information. I work with this amazing woman, Flo Lujani, who I'm going to give a shout out to at Media Bounty. And we've been um, basically surveying uh, a lot of the UK to kind of try and understand actually what, how do people feel about climate change and climate action but also, you know, kind of like what's going on in their in, in the rest of their lives to try and understand how we can do that. So through the Act Climate Labs Network, we'll be um, releasing some of that, that research. Um, but basically, we need to rethink. And obviously, with marketers' incredible creative skills, I think we can create new ways of, of thinking about and communicating this issue. Great stuff. But what stuck with you from this conversation? What can you apply to your own communications efforts? For me, the big one is that there is clearly an important role for marketers and advertisers to play in addressing the climate crisis. To borrow from Harriet's words, if you're one of these architects of desire, please check out Act Climate Labs and the Conscious Advertising Network for some inspiration on how you can make a difference. I've put links to both in the show notes. I guess the rest of my takeaways come more in the form of questions to check myself with. Number one. Who is earning from the ad placements of the businesses and organizations that I'm associated with? Number two, are the brands that I'm engaging with overstating their green credentials? Am I a sucker for premium eco-branding? What exactly am I falling prey to? Number three, am I considering ways to include or involve those outside the already converted in my communications outreach? So these are the things that I'll be carrying away with me. But how about you? What will you be taking with you into your work? Thanks to Harriet Kingaby for sharing her time and knowledge with the show. It was brilliant. You can find links to a bunch of other resources that Harriet mentioned in the show notes. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or by subscribing so you never miss out. I can really recommend episode 3 with Jenny King if you're interested in learning more about the disinformation economy that Harriet touched on here. Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkits to help us develop the skills and inspiration that we'll need for this important task. So be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.